I'm Andy, and I started Harry's, the shaving company that's fixing shaving. Here's why some of our customers choose Harry's. The blades are about $2 each. I get a nice, clean shave every time. The blades stay sharp for plenty of shaves. Thanks, guys. And for everyone else, give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter easy at checkout. That's harrys.com code easy. It's time once again for another episode of Planning Successfully. Brought to you by the law firm of Davis, Matthews, and Quigley. Planning Successfully is for general information purposes only. And no information discussed during this show is to be considered either legal advice or legal opinion. Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta. And now here's your host for today's episode, Matthew Theory. Welcome and thank you for joining us for this episode of Planning Successfully. I'm your host, Matt Theory. I'm joined in studio today again by my colleague, uh, Rhett Peden. Rhett joined me for a few episodes early on and I'm glad to have him back in the studio. Welcome back, Rhett. Good to be back. Um, we're going to talk, do a little brief reintroduction of ourselves and then I'm going to introduce today's topic. Uh, as mentioned previously, my practice focuses on business law, business litigation, and fiduciary litigation. Rhett, if you'd take a quick moment to reintroduce yourself as well. Well, I, uh, I practice uh, in the area of mergers and acquisitions, uh, helping uh, closely held businesses exit, uh, however that means. And we'll talk a little bit about that today, uh, how you might want to exit your business. Thanks, Rhett. You can learn more about uh, Rhett, learn more about me, or learn more about the other attorneys at Davis, Matthews, and Quigley by visiting our website, www.dmqlaw.com. Um, today, we're going to discuss the inevitable. Um, at some point in time, every business will either cease to exist or the ownership is going to change. Uh, we're going to focus today's conversation on that change of ownership. More specifically, we're going to talk about um, the sale of a business. There are a lot of factors that must be considered when you're selling a business, and um, the most successful sales typically result from proactive planning. The more you have buttoned up ahead of time, the smoother the sales process will be, and the more likely that you will have success in getting what you want out of the sale of your business. This topic is going to span uh, two episodes. Uh, today, we're going to discuss the process leading up to the sale. And then next time, we're going to discuss the process of the sale itself and some post-closing issues. In uh, some way, each of the episodes previously uh, to today all interrelate in ways with the discussion we're going to have today regarding the sale. So if you haven't already listened to those previous shows, I would encourage you to visit planningsuccessfully.com or dmqlaw.com and uh, you can there you can on those sites listen to the previous shows to catch up. That's so true, Matt, because uh, really when you go to sell a business, uh, it's, it's where it all comes together. And uh, all the planning that you've done really from even before you incorporate the business, is going to affect how that exit is going to look. So everything kind of comes together at that point that, that has been talked about in the show previously. Right. So today we're going to focus on basically the fruits of the labor that you will have implemented throughout your business. Uh, so basically if you, had, if you have done some of the things that we've talked about in the past and, and taking care of those issues ahead of time, uh, now you get to reap the rewards of having done so. So I think the first uh, topic that we'd like to cover today is why, why why do people sell their business? And I think uh, 
Rhett, you know, you and I both know, I think there's a variety of different reasons that folks may want to sell a business. Uh, one, the, the easiest one people come to think of is retirement, but there are plenty of other reasons and different types of motivations for sales. Could you go, go through some of those for us? Sure. And uh, it's so true that uh, every business, you're eventually going to have an exit from it one way or the other. Uh, and, but there are a lot of reasons when that happens, why it's happening. So what are some reasons someone uh, would go and sell a business? Uh, and, and who is the market uh, that you're going to be selling to? That's something you always have to take into consideration. Who, who is it going to be that's going to write you a fat check for that business? Uh, one of the first type of buyers that uh, many people think of, it's going to be management. They're going to be looking to uh, a co-owner, uh, someone who's in the executive team of the company, and uh, so inevitably it's a question of how are they going to afford to buy the company and are they uh, the right target uh, to market your company to? Are you going to realize the most value from there? And that may, not, that may just be a, a management employee or it could be someone in the family. We've got a lot of businesses that are on the second and third generation even, uh, but uh, there's a sell that takes place every time. You've got a nephew or a niece that wants to come into the business and uh, so you, you have a ready-made target uh, to, to buy. Uh, also, uh, in some circumstances, uh, uh, people look at doing an ESOP, uh, where that's a, uh, a tax-advantaged uh, way that some sellers uh, take money out of the business, and you sell it to a general group of your employees, and uh, you can generally get some good financing terms for that. It's not right for everyone, but uh, a lot of times, increasingly recently, with favorable uh, interest rates, we're seeing some ESOPs. But most sales are going to be to either a strategic buyer or a financial buyer. And what do I mean by that? Well, a strategic buyer might be a, uh, a big industry player who is in your line of business, and you're a smaller player in that field, and that big player is going to come and, and, and buy you out. Basically uh, absorbing you into their current structure. That's right. So for strategic reasons, you may, you may have a company that's located in California, and they want to have a presence in Georgia, and so they come and, and they find you as, as a target in Georgia that they'd like to buy. Uh, that's a that's a strategic buyer, or you may have somebody that's uh, you know wholesale uh, on the side of the business, and you're in the retail side, and you're pushing their product, and they may decide that they want to get into that part of the distribution chain, so they come and and they acquire your business to have another avenue to sell their product. That's a strategic buyer, uh, and and a lot of times uh, those deals may work out, especially. If you've still got a long-term uh, left, they, they generally like to have continuity in the business, and they're investing for the long haul. Uh, so if you, if you have a strategic buyer, they're probably looking uh, you know, 5, 10, 15 years or longer down the road. They want to make it work. Uh, but a financial buyer has a little bit different incentive. That's when you have the uh, private equity groups coming in. Uh, maybe they even decide they want to roll up a whole industry, or repackage it, or take your company make it a lot more efficient, and within less than five years, sometimes even within 18 months, turn around and sell your company again. Uh, and oftentimes, when you do a, a buyout like that, you get a second bite at the apple because you typically are going to roll over some of your equity with the idea that you're going to quickly uh, go back to market again uh, at an improved valuation. And so you've got uh, private equity, uh, financial buyers whose real incentive is just to buy something cheap and sell it high. And they are a, a, a ready-made market for a lot of companies that are coming to the mid-market uh, who are looking to sell and then have another bite at the apple. So those are, those are kind of the typical situations that you would see on the 
if you're trying to sell your company. Now, if you're trying to buy a company, which also comes up, if you're, you're looking to go out there and, and, and acquire another company, uh, there are some reasons that you might want to do that. Uh, you've got your uh, organic growth. Uh, you're just looking, again, to take out uh, another market. Uh, you may have a competitor that you want to get out of the way, and you might buy them out. Uh, and a lot of times what we see people doing is uh, they're trying to position their company uh, to sell it in the future. They may say, you know what, I think there's a strategic buyer or a financial buyer that might be interested in my company, uh, but we're not quite there yet. Or if I went out and bought this smaller fish and added his revenue to my company, then we could really package my company and get a higher multiple on our sales. And so that's another reason that we see a lot of people especially in the services businesses, tech business, they may say, if I go out and get this other company, then I might get somebody like uh, Apple or Verizon or IBM interested in buying my company. Adding a missing component to sort of make your company more attractive to the larger buyer, the the, the more strategic buyer at that point in time, or the financial buyer mm-hmm. that thinks that they can make something of that. Um, Brett, I, I want to talk a little bit about the role of advisors in this process. And we've gone through sort of the why why do you do this and how how the market reacts to things. But I want to talk about, you know, who's involved in the process and why. And I think that that's an important component. And, and I think another part of that is when do you get these people involved in the process? Because I think, you know, you and I, when we're thinking about uh, sales of businesses, we're thinking proactively. We're thinking you're not selling it today necessarily. Um, we can help you if you are, but we're, we're – where most people get the best bang for their buck is when they act ahead of time prior to the sale and try to take care of a lot of these things on the front end. So let's talk a little bit about some of these advisors and then eat, how each of them can be engaged and when they should be engaged. I think, you know, let's, let's start with, you know, the basics here. Like let's talk about, um, for example, an accountant. I think an accountant's probably a good first step. Uh, that's, that's absolutely right. And selling a company uh, is a team effort. And, the last thing that a business wants to do is to go out and be paying a lot of fees to people without any uh, payoff to that. Uh, but a lot of times you're going to be better off hiring good counsel in whatever role that is. Uh, they're going to add a lot more in value uh, than the fees that you're going to wind up paying them. And an accountant is a, a great example of that. Uh, most, most sellers of businesses they're really good at running their business. They go out there and they bring it in. They, they do sales. They do operations. But selling a business is uh, maybe the only time in their career that they're going to have this experience. And they don't realize the extent to which the details matter. Uh, and as you and I, have, we've talked about this before, a lot of our clients closely held companies. Uh, if, if it's just you or it's just you and a partner or you and your family, you're not necessarily paying attention to the niceties of uh, uh, what you should do and keeping your minutes up. And we, we preach to clients all the time about how important this is for various reasons. You and I have talked before on this show about liability and, and why it's so important to keep a separate corporate existence and not use the company as your piggy bank. But another reason that you want to keep everything, all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, is because when you go to sell a company, it's very important to that buyer that they see good corporate records, good corporate governance, good contracts, because they're they're looking, uh, they're they're not running this just for themselves. They're coming in for people they don't know, and they need a track record. They need to be see something in writing 
that backs up and, and brings substance to the company so it's not just the seller's word about what the company represents and right. the value that it has. And before we talk specifically about an accountant's role, let let's let me expand upon that for a second because I think the example I tend to use for that is if you're going to sell your house, for example, you're going to want to have your house in as best condition as possible. You're going to clean it up. You're not going to have your laundry laying out. You're going to clean the dishes. You're, you're going to make your house as presentable as possible before you have a potential buyer come through the house. You want everything in order. You want it to look as good as it can look. And you know you may not have that same level of preparation if your sister's coming over to talk for a couple of minutes just stopping by because they're familiar, sort of like your co-owners would be in a closely held company. You know, they know what's going on and they're okay with it, but they're not buying it. If you're the buyer and you're coming to market, just like a house, you want everything is in a good of condition as possible before you put the house on the market. So as to maximize the ability to turn around a profit or a sale price that you're looking to get out of the business. So I think it's a kind of a common analogy for folks to understand when you, when you think about it in the context of a house and the importance of the details when dealing with a house. I think sometimes business owners look past those details when they're running their business because, as you said, they're looking to be functional. They're looking to be operational. They want to do what they do. They want to make their widget or provide their service and generate profit, but they're not necessarily thinking of doing so in the context of down the road selling. And I think a lot of this can be, if you plan ahead of time, you can deal with a lot of those issues on the front end so that when you get to that point in the future, you're ready to roll. You don't that's, have to try to backfill at that point in time. That's right. You've got a leaky roof. You may just put a bucket under the leak, but the, whoever's buying your house is going to want you to fix that roof before they uh, buy it okay. and close. Ex exactly. So let's let's talk about an accountant, for example. What, what kind of things do you think an accountant has to offer to someone who's considering in the future selling their business? Well, they, an accountant is, is going to need to be very familiar with your business uh, when you go to sell it uh, because they're going to be talking uh, to the financial people on the other side of the equation, and, uh, and due diligence is part of what every uh, buyer is going to come in and do with your company. Due diligence simply means that they're going to be kicking the tires. They're going to come in and count how many widgets are in the warehouse. They're going to do all of that before they actually close on your deal. And a lot of that is accounting due diligence. How much, how much is your AR? How much are accounts receivable? Uh, what are your prepaid expenses? Uh, what are your projections for this year? What, what were your taxes like for the last couple of years? All of these things that your accountants help you with are things that the buyers are going to want to know about. And to have a relationship with an accountant before the sale happens is vitally important because you may not know how to respond to all these questions or you may not have the information at your fingertips and it's going to really delay the deal and cost a lot more to bring in someone to do that accounting at the last minute and you won't have as good advice from someone who's being brought in at the last minute than having had that relationship over time so that the accountant uh, is aware of what's going on in the company and can and can try to position you because uh, when you get down to counting things and get down into the weeds on that, there's so much that can come back to bite you. And a lot of things that we run into with closely held companies as well are accounting standards. And a lot of buyers that come in, are, uh, maybe it's going to be a bigger company, and they're going to be on something called gap accounting, which is generally accepted accounting principles. And they that keeps track of things in a very particular way. And most closely held companies are not going to be on GAAP accounting. They're, they're going to be doing something that's a little less formal than GAAP. And so once you try to merge those two accounting systems, there are a lot of ways that a, a, a savvy buyer 
could come in and put things into your purchase agreement uh, that would come back to bite you later, especially on, on things like working capital calculations, earnouts, uh, purchase price adjustments, uh, that if they're using the GAAP standard that works in their favor and you haven't been te- keeping track of things in accordance with GAAP, you need your accountant there to point those things out and make sure that we're using the same yardstick pre-sale and post-sale. And that's one of the trickiest things to navigate in a sale, and that's where an accountant's advice and, and their fees are just so worthwhile to invest in. And, and likewise, I think, you know, obviously uh, you and I have the most experience in what, what roles can an attorney play in that process. And, you know, I think we've talked several times about the corporate veil and why it's important, but what what you do to get that corporate veil protection is to maintain formalities and have the corporate book in order. So you have your shareholders agreement, partnership agreement, operating agreement, whatever type of entity you are, the governing documents for that. But you also have your minutes in order and you have everything kind of buttoned up from the from the corporate records perspective. And and we've talked about that at length before. You know, there are a couple of other things that I think uh, get overlooked in that process too when you're trying to, to consider a sale. Obviously, the negotiation of the purchase and sale agreement is a, is a very significant role of an attorney in this process. Knowing exactly what the deal is and how you're going to structure it is vitally important. Uh, knowing the tax consequences of the t- certain types of deals is obviously vitally important. And also having the ability to have on the front end the vendor contracts, the supplier contracts, the distribution contracts, and everything buttoned up with third-party third party contracts uh, before walking in to try to deal with the sale is also vitally important. Uh, what other concepts do you think that are generally out there that you know an attorney can bring to the table that obviously all of these have vital roles to the sale success? Well, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a call from someone and they said, well, I just signed a letter of intent. Now can you, can you help me with this deal that we've got? And uh, I, I really I hate to get a call like that from someone. Uh, of course, we'll do what we can to try to help them through this deal, but you've lost a lot of your leverage as a seller already once you've entered into that letter of intent. Uh, you know, we may be able to save someone a lot of money if we could have uh, structured something, for example, as a stock sale instead of an asset sale. Uh, and save them on the taxes substantially. Uh, but once you've committed to that path in the letter of intent, to get a buyer to agree to an adverse change from what's been set out on a preliminary basis, uh, you're really uh, at a disadvantage in trying to negotiate that. Uh, or uh, you know, not having uh, certain uh, things like a non-disclosure agreement in place uh, can really be a detriment uh, to someone who's trying to sell their company. And you may get down the road talking with a potential buyer for your company without a non-disclosure confidentiality agreement in place that an attorney who was in the picture could have advised you on that. Uh, but then once you've disclosed that information and it's not under any obligation to be held in confidence, uh, you could really be hurt by that. I've, I've got a particular uh, client of mine in mind who had a situation where uh, against advice, he went out and, and started disclosing some information to someone and Thought you know it was a gentleman's agreement, a handshake. Uh, you know we'll we'll do everything the right way, and then uh, a week later they said you know we're really not interested in buying your company, and the next day he saw some advertisements uh, out there, uh, basically using his business model and his pricing to compete with him uh, by the person who had been interested in buying his business. Uh, And they were using that information, which was under no obligation to be held in confidence. So they were using what he had told them to compete against him. So 
an attorney, having a relationship with an attorney before you actually commit yourself to any path of action uh, could really save you a lot in the long term. Uh, but it, it's a team effort when you go to sell a business. Uh, the earlier we can get in, the better. And there, there are pre-closing or pre-sale consultants, management consultants who can kind of help you get into a, a position to sell your business. Uh, appraisers can, can help uh, both at the time of sale to make sure that you're getting a, a fair deal. And what I see a lot of times are, are business owners who really have no idea what their business is worth. And they may have a number in their head that if I could get this, you know, I'd be willing to sell my business. Uh, and But they, they don't know if they're there or not. And sometimes it helps to get an appraiser on a very informal basis, not not providing uh, a really, uh, I, I you know, I hate to say back of the envelope valuation, but if you can get that and have some certainty uh, about what your business might be worth, that may make the decision for you. Is it time to sell or do I need to take some other steps uh, to get my company ready to get it to the place that I want it to be where I could have a successful exit? So management consultants, appraisers, accountants, attorneys, and then uh, I always get asked about business brokers and investment bankers. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like going back to your earlier example, Matt, about selling your house. If you had somebody come and say that they would take a 5% commission versus someone taking a 7% commission, uh, you know, you may say, well, I want to go with a 5% person. But if the person charging 7% could get you an extra 10% on the price of your house, they've more than made up for their commission. And I've seen that happen so many times. If you get the right advisors in place, and there are a lot of people who want to tell you that they could sell your business, and, and a lot of times it's hard to decide who might be a good advisor. But if you, if you have a relationship with an accountant and an attorney, uh, then they can help steer you in the direction of someone that has the experience and the ability to help market your company. Yeah, and just so the folks that aren't familiar with this process uh, that are listening, uh, explain a little bit about what maybe a business broker would do for someone. Well, and, and that terminology itself uh, presents an issue because uh, you've got investment bankers and you've got business brokers, and a lot of what they do overlaps. Uh, investment bankers are typically going to be licensed uh, with, with FINRA. Uh, they're going to have uh, the licenses that, that they need to sell the company. And what happens if you've got a business broker uh, and that doesn't have a securities license, they need to fit it within certain uh, safe harbor exceptions that the SEC has said that you can kind of fall into and not have to have a securities license. When that becomes an issue is under some circumstances, if you have sold uh, a company or stock in a company through a business broker who is not licensed, you may, and then you have a disappointed buyer, they may try to rescind the deal and say that it was an unauthorized securities transaction. Mm -hmm. So we always have to be aware of whether if we're using a business broker who's not licensed, uh, are they falling within the safe harbor that the SEC allows. Uh, but what they're going to do is they're going to take a fee uh, on selling the business. And so if if they introduce you to someone who decides to buy your business, they will get paid a percentage. And that can vary from if you've got a small deal with a business broker, they may want something like 10%. And if you've got a very large deal, larger, a few million or more with an investment banker, they may be looking at 1% or 2%. And there are various ways that you can structure that, uh, you know, with a success fee or you get less percentage as you as the purchase price gets higher. I mean, there are just there are various ways that you can skin a cat on that, but they're essentially going to bring buyers and sellers of businesses together 
And if you've got a knowledgeable investment banker who knows who the potential buyers and, and really can have a large universe of people to bring to the table, that's generally going to be better for you as a seller to realize a higher price, especially if you could run some sort of auction on your business and get two or three, four more people actively interested in acquiring your business, that's really going to uh, row down to your benefit in the end. And and likewise, if you're successful in the sale of your business, hopefully you're dealing with a liquidity event that's of note. And uh, having, a, having a good investment advisor uh, is also in a pretty valuable service that can be provided to someone that, that runs into a situation like this where all of their capital for a very long time has been tied up in this business, and now all of a sudden they're, they're sitting on a pile of cash and they don't know what to do with it. And having, having a qualified... Um, investment advisor that can help walk them through the, the process of that it could could very well mean the difference between that money lasting a very long time or being a very short-lived uh, gain. That's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, the other thing that you get into, uh, Matt, are the types of transactions uh, that you do. Uh, and an attorney can help advise on that. But do you want to do you want to do a stock sale or an asset sale? That's one of the fundamental questions that you've got to deal with. And And what are the differences? Well, there's generally going to be a tax difference uh, between a stock sale and an asset sale, and there's going to be a, uh, a difference uh, between how that's treated for state law purposes. And so what I mean by a tax difference, uh, when you sell the assets of a company, uh, if there's any depreciation you've had on those assets, uh, you're going to recapture that depreciation. So you may be paying uh, it some ordinary or higher income tax rates on the asset deal. Uh, and if you sell stock in a company, uh, generally, you're going to be paying capital gains rates, which are generally lower. And if you've held it, typically, which is going to be longer than a year, you're going to get long-term capital gains rates, which are uh, going to be preferable to you as a seller. Uh, so from a tax standpoint, you're generally going to want to do a stock sell than an asset sell. Now, the reverse is true. If you're buying a company, uh, you're probably going to want to do uh, an asset sell because you're not going to be able to depreciate stock. But if you buy a company's assets, then you get to redepreciate those assets once you buy them and, and just uh, get a tax benefit ongoing after the sale. Just like when you're a business owner and you expense or depreciate property, your buyer is going to be able to do that on your assets, but he won't be able to do that if he buys your stock. He's kind of locked in long-term with that purchase price. Um, and so that's one thing that you've got to look at when selling a company. The other difference between an asset sell and a stock sell, uh, again, if you are a seller, you would like a stock sell because the buyer is taking on all your assets and your liabilities. So whatever comes with the company, whatever liabilities, those are packaged along with the stock that you hand off to the, to the buyer. But if you're a buyer, you would prefer, again, to do an asset sell because you get to cherry pick the assets and liabilities. And if, if you've got a liability of the business you're buying that you don't want to pick up, you just, uh, in the agreement, you say that you're not going to take that liability on. It's going to remain with the seller. And likewise, you may have a, a really good asset that you want to take and another asset you don't need. You don't have to buy the assets that you don't want in a deal if you're doing an asset sale. So for tax reasons and for state law liability issues, a seller is going to prefer always a stock sale and a buyer is always going to prefer an asset sale. And then it's a matter of leverage between buyer and seller about what you wind up with. And, and you get a little wrinkle in this also with goodwill. I think you know I've talked about in the past that you know it depends if you're a service company and the, and the 
the main asset of the business is the the reputation of the company through the ownership structure. So you're having an individual goodwill versus institutional goodwill, and how do you transfer that goodwill over time to the new the new owner? Is is it can be very complicated. Um, the likelihood is that you know in those sales transactions, the owner that possesses that goodwill is going to be asked to commit to sticking around for a certain period of time to help transfer that asset to the new company. And in doing so, probably part of the purchase price will be connected in some way to the performance of that company and over a period of time. That's right. And, and when you're doing a, 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 you're going in to buy a company, especially say like a tech company or, or a professional services firm, it's not capital intensive. There's not a lot of equipment that you're using. Most of the value of the company is represented by the intellectual capital, which walks out the door at the end of every day. And you want to make sure that the company has had certain employment agreements, confidentiality agreements that protects that intellectual capital for the company that's going to make it more valuable when you sell it. Now, from a tax perspective, though, that when you do an asset sale, the IRS has a particular set of rules that you have to follow when you allocate your purchase price to the assets. So you start out with things that are easy, like cash uh, or stock that has a, um, a market value. And then you go to uh, you know real estate or buildings and things that you can get an appraisal for. And whatever's left over after you've allocated that purchase price to all your, your assets uh, is goodwill. And uh, goodwill is depreciated over a very long period of time. So there's not a lot of tax benefit to a buyer for picking up your goodwill it's almost like buying stock. Uh, you get very little depreciation out of goodwill in each year. But that's that represents for a services business can typically be the, the largest part of uh, of the business's value. Right, exactly. And I think we're we're running really short on time. We're going to have to continue on the to the next show with a lot of these other topics. But I, um, you know, as as is the case with all business owners that are contemplating selling their business, you you want to get the highest return possible. And all, from all your hard work that you've put in over the years in developing your business and making it successful. So as is the case with most, th- most things in life, uh, this usually involves having a plan and implementing that plan. The more proactive uh, you are in the process, the higher your chances of success. Um, as I said at the beginning of the show, we're dealing with the inevitable here. You know, you're either going to shut the doors or you're going to transfer ownership at some point in time. Uh, which occurs and how that occurs is largely up to the business owner and how they plan and how they interact in the, in, in, with the market that they're in. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of Planning Successfully. Uh, you can learn more about DMQ and its attorneys by visiting dmqlaw.com. You can follow DMQ on Twitter at dmqlaw. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Theory. You can reach us by telephone at 404-261-3900. And thanks again for joining us, and please join us next time for another episode of Planning Successfully. Thank you again for joining us and our guests on Planning Successfully. Use the social media links here to share today's show, and stay tuned for the next episode of Planning Successfully, brought to you by the law firm of Davis, Matthews, and Quigley. Planning Successfully is for general informational purposes only, and no information discussed during the show is to be considered either legal advice or legal opinion. To connect with the show sponsor, visit dmqlaw.com. And to listen to previous broadcasts, visit planningsuccessfully.com.
I'm Andy, and I started Harry's, the shaving company that's fixing shaving. At Harry's, we keep it simple. We make sharp, durable blades and offer them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We obsess over quality so much that we do crazy things, like buy a German razor blade factory. So give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for only three bucks with free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter five at checkout. That's harrys.com code five. There's nothing better for your health than good sleep. That's why Haverty's Furniture has partnered with the Scott Brothers to offer Scott Living Mattresses, now $250 off. Expect no pressure. Just support from the Haverty's Sleep Experts. Tap now or visit Haverty's.com. 